0: From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review podcast.
1: I'm Brandon Taylor. I'm the editor-at-large of the Swanee Review, and I'm here with Katie Kitamura, author of the brand new Intimacies. Katie, welcome. Thank you, Brandon. I'm so happy to be here with you. I I am a long time fan, first time caller, um, <laughs> and you know your work has really these last few years been such a wonderful companion for negotiating the mysteries of our contemporary life. I always think of you as our foremost bard in the sort of ambient dread of contemporary society.
2: <laughs> oh, Brandon, thank you so much. That really means a lot because I. I think I might have even said this to you like in a fan email, but I felt such a strong kinship with your work. And I really remember the first time I read it, which is I read an excerpt online somewhere real life. I read the opening paragraph and I was like, that's it. I'm in. I'm 100% in. I love this writer. I feel at home with this writer. It's so exciting just to be talking
1: to you here now. Oh yeah. I do feel that we are sisters in dread <laughs> for sure. <laughs> where I'd like to begin is just to ask you, where does a story begin for you? So the Canadian writer Mavis Gallant says that for her, a story happens in a flash. For her, she sees an almost black and white still, no dialogue, no sound, but just people in a scene. For you, I'd love to hear like, where does story begin for you? Is it character? Is it place? Is it an image? Is it a little snatch of dialogue or something?
2: I mean I love that question and it's it's changed from book to book but I think with the last two books it's really started with a kind of moral predicament maybe or an impossible situation of some kind with the separation it started with the idea of a woman who is separated from her husband when her husband dies and she chooses to not tell anybody that they're separated and to continue to kind of play the role of a grieving widow and so that idea of playing a part and how that performance sort of starts to seep into who you actually are. That was a kind of starting point for that novel. With Intimacies, I think it really did start with the idea of what it means to be an interpreter and what it means to literally speak the words of other people and what that does to your subjectivity. When you think of yourself as a kind of neutral instrument of some kind, when you think of yourself as a kind of mouthpiece for a large institution, you know, what does that actually do to your own subjectivity and your own sense of agency? So that kind of dilemma was at the heart of it. But then location is really, really important to me. And both the last two books have been set in Europe, and they both kind of airdrop the central characters into these cities or these places that they don't know very well. And then once they're there, they kind of have to act as almost like archaeologists or anthropologists of, of the place they're in. And they have to try to decode the rules, the, the mores. They have to try to understand the culture, the history of the place. So, yeah, I think in Intimacies, I tried to do that through a number of ways, particularly through art and the institutions of art in The Hague. And then in a Separation, it was probably through the um, phenomenon of these of these Greek
1: professional mourners, I feel that, in many ways, your work is almost more akin to the playwriting of, like, Ibsen and even some of Chekhov's later plays than it is to what I can think of as, like, the sort of Jamesian heritage of the, you know, the sort of American contemporary novel And I feel that many of those plays do begin with these inexorable dilemmas. No, I
2: mean, and nobody has ever, ever mentioned Ibsen in relation to my work, but I read a lot of Ibsen. I actually, I I studied Ibsen in college. And then when I was writing A Separation, I went back and I reread all the plays. They exactly open with these kind of secrets. They put the protagonist in these kind of impossible positions and they make these impossible choices. And then it's the kind of aftermath of that choice. So absolutely, Ibsen is a really big kind
1: of anchoring figure for me. And I love that you intuited that. Well, I think it's because I also am such are an Ibsen. I love Ibsen. I had yeah. no idea. I read him for the first time in high school. Yeah. We, did a, we did a doll's house and the teacher's like, oh yes, this is Ibsen because we have to cover it. And I was like, what Whoa. is this magical, austere world where people are caught up in these moral these true like moral dilemmas of what it means to act with agency and like how does one act with agency when your life has become tethered to family to work to all of these ideas of who we are and that fundamental tension between self-identification and the self that is socially constructed right like this so I immediately just like really loved Ibsen. And I do feel that it's like so close to the heart of intimacy, certainly, but also a separation. <laughs>
2: no, I, I mean, you're completely right. And I think one other thing maybe why we both love Ibsen so much is that because there's an austerity and a kind of restraint to the form of his kind of dramas, but at the same time, they are melodramas in some way they have access to real depths and wilds of emotion. And that's a kind of magic trick of them in some way. I mean, I feel you do that in your work as well. It's so tightly controlled and the frame on it is very, very precise. And it is really looking at social constructs, how they apply pressure on people, but then they really open up into these chasms of emotion. They really sweep you away. And I think that is very hard to do,
1: I think. You say that for you, it starts with that moral dilemma. And so then I'm curious, what happens next? Like once you pin down the moral dilemma and once you airdrop your character into these cities, sometimes voluntary, sometimes involuntary exiles of, you know, they're sort of removed from quote unquote home. I think in Intimacies, there's these really great passages early on where the narrator's like thinking about what is home? Do I really belong anywhere? Like what is is home? What is a place? And that to me also feels like kind of the secret second engine that drives much of your work. There is yes, the sort of social dilemmas, but also the idea of where do I belong? Like your characters feel so liminal and interstitial. And so I'm curious, once you've located the um, primary moral dilemma, and once you've located your setting, how then do you move to the action of drama or plot?
2: I love writing set pieces, mm. as I suspect maybe
0: mm-hmm. you do as
2: well. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love a set piece, and Intimacies in particular was kind of conceived as a series of set pieces in some way. and And the passages you're referring to that are about the underpinning search for a sense of home or place. You know, those I I wrote afterwards. I had to go back and kind of put them in to create the kind of framework to place all these set pieces in, in a way. But I like to put my characters in situations of pressure and then just keep adding pressure. And that's really the only logic there is for, is to kind of keep putting them in positions where they have to make difficult personal or psychological or ethical choices and just kind of figure out what they might do. I mean, I, I don't know that there's any other logic beyond that. The writer who's probably most influential is a Spanish writer, Javier Marias. Mm-hmm. He's able to pull off these really, truly, truly impossible scenarios where you think if you when you hear it described on paper, you're like, no writer could make me believe this is possible ever. And yet he's able to execute that. And I don't know how you feel, but I always feel like if I know I can pull off a scene, then that already feels like a failure to mm-hmm. me, right? Like I want to write something where I don't know if I'll be able to pull it off or the proposition seems risky and the likelihood of failure is is very much there. I feel like writers are like sharks; like you have to keep moving, mm-hmm. or else you'll you'll, you'll die. And I, I, so so there's there are scenes in the book where I thought, is this really something that feels genuinely plausible for this character? Maybe not, but I want to see if I can pull it off.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love everything about that. As you were talking about putting characters under pressure and that being the kind of operating logic of how you sort of work through plot and stuff, it feels very Freudian. In Beyond the Pleasure Principle, there's this section called Remembering Something, Working Through. And in that, he sort of describes this sort of circularity of analysis, wherein some people resist analysis because they sort of recreate the sort of triggering event and they project that onto the analyst and it sort of gets really ridiculous and really difficult. And so they're having to sort of constantly circle back through this series of like increasingly harrowing Mm -hmm. recollections. And it feels somehow that putting characters under sequential loads of pressure is akin to remembering something, working through, you know, this idea that you're sort of putting a character through their paces again and again and again until they pop. Mm -hmm. And they sort of, and the pop, of course, is like epiphany or it's realization or it's the story shifting into some other gear where the character is suddenly having to go beyond the sort of strictures of their circumstances into the true sort of unknown. And that's what you were just discussing the, um, if you think that, you know, that you can do the scene, it's not (laughs) going to work.
2: No, I mean, there's so much in what you just said that I I love. I mean, first of all, circularity is like the organizing principle for my prose, I Mm -hmm. think, especially in the last two books and when I write in first person is the idea of, which I know this doesn't sound very promising, but <laughs> I do want to try to capture mind moving in circles. That's that's kind of how I think of the prose. is It's like here's object A, and maybe I'll look at it from the front, and then from the side, and from the back, and then from the top. And that's just the kind of logic of how I want to try to make her mind work. The other thing I I would say is that they are both novels that are are thinking about trauma in some way and some bit of narrative that hasn't been processed, and therefore presents itself in fragments, and it is a mind going over those fragments, returning to the side of the trauma over and over again, and trying to create eventually a narrative out of it. Obviously, with trauma, once you have the narrative, that is a form of recovery. I think that's something I'm not always interested in giving to my characters, but as you completely correctly said, there's like there are other forms of release that you can use in fiction that will create that feeling. But that's absolutely true. and I mean that I mean, we were talking a little bit yesterday. But, you know, I didn't do an MFA, but I did work on this documentary series that was directed by a very good friend of mine called Sophie Fines, And it was featuring the philosopher Slavoj Žižek talking about the relationship between psychoanalysis and cinema. And so it's a kind of three part series. And in that he looks at classic films and he kind of looks at the Lacanian structures Um, of psychoanalysis that are kind of underpinning it, or he uses that lens to kind of interpret and interrogate those films. And that was my, I like to say, and it sounds like a pat line, but it's really true. It was like my MFA. Like it taught me so much about structure, about narrative, about character. And I think also, you know, you can use all those principles to think about institutions as well. The relationship between the institution and the individual is such a big part of psychoanalysis. So Yes. Yes to everything (laughs) you said. I also do want to ask you about like when you set out to write a kind of like your dinner party scenes, for example, like, do you know when you start up, this is my territory, I know how to do this, I'm just going to do or or do you have a sense of, you know, not necessarily knowing if you'll be able to pull off some of those difficult scenes? Or maybe those aren't the difficult scenes for you. I don't Mm.
1: don't actually know. Well, so I don't know that they're the difficult scenes. I mean, there's I sort of relish the technical difficulty yes. of having 15 characters yes. in one scene. Yes. That's like delightful to yes. me. But the, the part of it that is <laughs> the part of it that is like truly difficult is exactly what you describe. I remember in so in my first book, Real Life, there's a dinner party scene in the middle of the book. And I remember writing that scene and realizing that I was sort of suppressing the truly interesting stuff that the characters could have said because I didn't want to blow it up. And I remember being in my MFA program after i had written that novel and being told by Charlie D'Ambrosio that I was a very protective writer and that I was a very civilized writer, which he said in a very derogatory way. And he was like, you like to portion out and separate all the combustible elements of your stories. And you don't like to let them mix and you need to let them mix. And... I was like, I don't think that's true. Mm-mm-mm. But when I went back to revise real life, I realized that there was some truth in that. That I was so sure that if I let some of the characters say things that they needed to say, that it would blow up the social scene and that I couldn't figure out like how I would handle it. Like if a character says something racist at a dinner party in that book, I'm like, I don't know how to write the aftermath of that. And part of why I don't know how to write the aftermath of it. It's because in actual lived experience, when someone says something like that, it kind of brings a screeching halt to everything. And so then, narratively, you're like, how do I render Mm -hmm. the sort of contours of that silence? How do I render the social contours? Because it, it creates a void in that space. And I think it's akin to trying to write trauma. The thing that trauma does to narrative is that it distorts it.
2: It's funny you say that because I, I remember with that thing about being a protective writer. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that's definitely something people would say and have said and probably are saying right now about my about my work. But I, I do remember that I wrote two books that were in, in third person. They had this very particular kind of fragmentary style. And the thing I really realized was that I was using this kind of paring back and this sparseness as a way to avoid saying the thing that I was scared of saying. You know, I was retreating into style, mm. if, if that makes sense. So I would I would make sentences that had a particular rhythm and that has sparseness to them and that can maybe pass muster. I don't really know. And then I think with these last two books, I really thought I'm going to just, I mean, I don't know how they come across, but to me, they're quite messy books. And I was like, I'm just going to let that neuroses and anxiety Live a little bit more on the page and kind of wander around on the page a little bit more because I, I I mean I think it is one of the hardest things about being a writer is realizing where you are trying to protect yourself. that's like the kind of hardest thing like the technical thing is is one thing obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously and the voice thing is and there's all these these things that you know we talk about in a workshop, for right. example, we talk about all those things, and the thing that you is very hard to talk about in, in a workshop. And I think is almost something that can't be talked about apart from kind of internally with the writer is where the points where you are kind of hiding a little bit and what would it mean to expose yourself and I suppose also you know that exposure could, could result in failure it's not always a success if you know right. what I mean right if you push yourself it's not always
1: gonna pay off I would love to talk to you a little bit about the uncanny I feel that in a separation i mean there are many terrifying things about that book but the thing that like chilled me to my core was the idea that it is still possible for a person to disappear like it's still possible for all of our sort of interconnectedness that despite that it is still possible for a person to slip through the cracks and disappear I mean, it does feel like one of the great illusions of our contemporary society that we're all just like connected all the time. But of course, we people go missing every day. People disappear every day. People die every day. But your novel, that novel is so terrifyingly astute on the easiness of disappearing.
2: Mm-hmm. I guess there's two things. I think one of the most uncanny everyday occurrences is when you look at the person who you think you know best in the world and and they seem to be a stranger Mm. to you and that happens I think very very frequently and it's it's very strange and that's you know I have that feeling all the time really I mean I guess because I'm a fiction writer I'm very interested in living inside of that feeling so it doesn't alarm me I'm just kind of I just kind of oh, how interesting. I'm looking at your face and <laughs> for a brief moment, I don't exactly know who you are at all. And so, I think, I suppose the the novels are kind of expanding that and putting, you know, creating the most extreme version of that. And then it's a separation and intimacies both feature partners who disappear for different reasons. That was what I was interested in exploring is that weird space where even very smart people can be drawn into the psychodrama of a romance and take a very ordinary, very easily explained thing, which is just, you know, you need a little space or or you're doing something else or whatever it is. And it can kind of expand and expand and expand and expand and how, how the kind of not getting a text message, for example, can seem inordinately stressful when all it is is not getting a text message. In part, because I think Intimacies for me was always a, a novel that was going to try to be about negotiating that gap between personal experience and then large global history-making events around the central character. So it was always going to be about how that character is kind of caught between the sense of, of events that are of global importance and then her very small, ordinary concerns. And the solution cannot be just to say my my small life doesn't matter. That's just not a human way to be able to live. But I think in the novel, part of what it's grappling with is how as a as a person in the world, you have to inhabit that cognitive dissonance and and kind of say, I am upset that this person hasn't texted me and I am, you know, a witness to these kind of atrocities that are happening.
1: That's so fascinating. I feel that in contemporary literature, there is... I feel that other writers approach that tension differently and they resolve that tension differently. The tension between the sort of the great, ca- yes. you know, yeah. sort of yeah, yeah, catastrophic yeah. world history yeah. <laughs> making events and like getting ghosted by yeah. your boyfriend in his very beautiful <laughs> um, apartment. Some writers approach that by by shrugging and saying like, oh, I know my problems aren't very important and yada, yada, yada. And they make excuses before going on for 300 pages about their very unimportant mm-hmm, problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They feel the need to sort of make the apology mm-hmm. And then other writers just sort of like completely disregard the sort of world history making events, and they're like, oh, that stuff is on the outside. I have more important stuff mm-hmm. to do.
2: I mean, I think it has to be somebody's struggle to maintain that cognitive dissonance where you are still upset and outraged and you are still a human in the world. It was, mm-hmm. you know, during the pandemic, I was emailing with Zadie Smith, who's a friend and I sent the kind of typical email that I think everybody was sending. She said, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. You know, we're so lucky. We have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and we are lucky. We were tremendously lucky. And she just wrote back and she said, your pain is still your pain. And you're allowed to have your pain. Mm. And that was really very true. And she said, she said, I'm tired of everybody sending these emails that are sort of saying... I'm so lucky. I'm so fortunate. I don't have anything to complain about. Because you have to own your own experience because that's all you do have in the world. And you have to, and I think a version of what she was saying is a version of what I was maybe thinking about in, in the book is that it's easy to say my life doesn't matter because X. But in fact, the harder thing is to say my life does matter, but so does X. You know, And my small experience does have meaning or does have validity I think it's much easier to kind of shrug it all off and say whatever. And I think that kind of conflict is what's more interesting in fictional terms.
1: But of course, I mean, it's totally understandable because I feel that in some ways, like in many ways, the writer has always had to contend with the idea of the public in whatever way the writer has contended with it. You know, some Mm choose to ignore it and et cetera. But the writer has always had to contend with the idea of the public, but it feels that in some ways the public is more present in our lives mm-hmm. than ever before. Mm-hmm. Like we have access to... Mm-hmm. What the, the public thinks. And they have access to us. Yes. Um, yeah. And so it. I feel that sometimes you can tell in a novel when a writer is not writing a pure subjectivity and instead they're sort of writing the sort of mediated subjectivity. Yes. And it's like filtered through the sort of slightly judgmental eye of the algorithm. Yes. But intimacies is not... <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that I found so bracing and refreshing about it is that it was, it was a true recreation of what it is to exist in the contemporary world, which is that we're having to contend with the sort of moral quandaries of our institutions, yeah. even as we rely on them for work, for mm-hmm. stability in our mm-hmm. lives, even as our personal lives shift in strange and mysterious ways. And all of that happening at the same time is just a life.
2: I mean, that's something that I feel so much about writing in general and which it took me a long time to really understand is how exposing it is Mm. and how it's not, it's not exposing because I am the character in my book at all, which is, which is maybe what some people think, but it's not exposing in that way, but it's because my character is in the book in terms of its, voice or its structure or its way of telling a story or its way of not telling a story all those things are very much me so there's no one-to-one in terms of me in the book as a character but that book is absolutely some description of how I experience the world and when I read the work of my friends who are writers and and I have a few like I can really see my friends in their books and it's not in the sense of a single character but their imprint is very much Mm -hmm. there.
0: Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at librarysewaneeedu backslash Ralston.
1: things. My newest book is a book of stories, filthy animals. And I wrote those stories. I started writing those stories a like long time ago. F- right? like five years ago. And <laughs> I edited them yeah. during the pandemic. Like during the pandemic. You were and working on them and polishing them. But it literally did not dawn on me until I was talking to Scott Simon at NPR. He was like, Yeah, your book is like kind of perfect for this pandemic era. And I was like, Oh. I guess that's true because it's about a, a person who, who has been in a mental hospital and he's trying to reintegrate into society. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess, I
2: guess it is. It's really, it's, it's really perfect for our startled re-entry into the post-slight, not really post, slightly post right, the, mid-pandemic The fake world. pandemic
1: end, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's this thing of like, I was writing those stories because I was lonely and like very sort of disturbed in Madison Wisconsin like five years ago and I was like writing them to sort of capture. And were you
2: writing them while you were in grad school the other grad
1: school? Yes I was I wrote them before I wrote Real Life and I was trying to capture some of what it was like to be a startled slightly anxious confused person in Wisconsin and the sort of pandemic context has allowed me to look at that book and be like Oh, that's what I was trying yeah. to do—that exact thing.
2: Yeah, and I think it is in some ways. It's—I I, mean—I feel I've been really lucky so far in that I've—I've I've had the chance to talk to some really smart people who have kind of helped me, <laughs> <laughs> in the guise of interviews, kind of understand what I was trying to do, which is what I was doing, I guess. So it's—it's—it's really—it's kind of really interesting. I'm such a novel writer, mm-hmm. and I read a lot of novels. I probably read more novels than short stories. So I see everything. And for me, like Paul Yoon's A Mountain have you, oh. is like a novel to me. And same with cleanness, actually. Mm-hmm. For me, that is, that is a novel. And obviously, Filthy Animals is a, is a collection. But you do this really extraordinary thing where each story is in an island of its... You know, it operates on its own terms, and it has a very satisfying arc. But it's open enough to be inserted into a collection in a very, very particular way. And overall, they have a kind of arc within themselves. And they, I mean, I could have, if you told me that was a novel, I would have said absolutely. But I just wonder when, if you wrote, you wrote them a long time ago. I assume you wrote them not sequentially. Mm -hmm. How did you do that kind of stitching within the collection.
1: Yeah, so the um, sort of central interlinked stories, yeah. I think there's six of yes. them. They follow these characters, Lionel, Charles, and Sophie. And I did write those stories sequentially. Okay, I wrote them in about a week in, in Wisconsin. I'm doing my
2: what? Face. And,
1: well, it was my Trump election anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, is what I did that. But the title story I wrote and the story Little Beast, I wrote in August of 2016. And so those stories were gonna be in a sort of different book, and I was gonna try to write these linked stories as their own thing. But then I realized that those two projects probably needed to come together. Mm-hmm. And so then I had this conundrum of how do I <laughs> how do I how do I bring them together? Yeah. And then it seems really obvious now because i really don't think that there's any other way for the book to exist but i i was like what if i like break it up like what if i have those be the sort of central spine of the book and then i have what i call interstitial stories in between them and i tried that and i was like oh yeah this is This is exactly what I wanted. This is exactly the rhythm. And then I got to use those interstitial stories to accentuate or play with different modalities and tonalities in the main stories. And they all got to sort of become this really, you know, really great harmony of narrative. But it was really just like experimenting and asking myself very deeply like, what am I after with Mm -hmm. these linked stories? Mm -hmm. And some people call it a novella. And I really don't think that it is a novella because I think that those stories are too tightly. Yeah. And they really do need other stories mm-hmm. as spacers, as these interstitial moments.
2: They create the kind of oxygen that flows mm-hmm. through the book in some yes. way
1: really beautifully. And it kind
2: of gives you, as a reader, the space to see what you're looking mm-hmm. at on some level, yeah. which is really, which really works beautifully. But you didn't alter in any way the. In- the kind of
1: integrity of the individual story. You kept them as they were. Yeah, yeah. And it felt important because, you know, like those stories follow so closely on each other, like narratively, they're like a couple hours apart. Yes. And you really do need, like in order for there to be like a sense of movement, you really do need to like leave that world and come back to it again and again and again.
2: The total time frame on Filthy Animals is, it's taking place across, is it like
1: two two days. days? Yeah, two days. And
2: real life is like...
1: Two days. To, yeah, well, Friday <laughs> to evening s- to Monday yeah. morning. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One I love weekend. that. I love that. I love a kind of really tightly contained time frame. I mean that was something with intimacies because it had to be it had to be bigger to accommodate the kind of arc of the the trial um, that mm-hmm. I was I wrote into the into the book. But I really what I naturally find most interesting is like a couple of days. <laughs>
1: yeah. But I mean I feel like that trial The trial, of course, takes place across more than one day, of course. But the fact that it sort of serves the same purpose as a compressed time frame because it's a sort of central scaffolding, organizing event that you sort of come back to again and again. I love your work because there is at once this... Kind of like blasé attitude to time. You're like, I don't know, could have been two weeks, could have been a day. Who can say? That's not really important. And yet, you absolutely do feel that you are in the (laughs) gravitational field of the events of the book, like the trial and that horrifying party where she meets
2: the guy's friend. Those scenes were so fun to write. I mean, I don't know how it is. Well, I, I feel like you write everything quite quickly, but you know. So I feel like for me, those those bigger kind of scenes like I, I can almost write them in a sitting and then it's all the like in between stuff that just takes me ages you know the kind yeah. of stitching together that stuff is really hard for me but I love writing those big scenes and that scene with the party was so much fun to write I remember my friend had been the same friend who made the documentary about Slavoj she had been working for a time had been thinking about making a film about a British theater company called Cheek by Jowl I don't mm-hmm. know if you know who they are. they're they're really really extraordinary and this really visionary theatre director called Declan O'Donnell. And she'd said the kind of thing about what's interesting in a scene is how much space is between people and what that space is doing and how you kind of activate that space. And kind of way the cross-section of what individual characters want from other characters and how you kind of do the choreography of that which is something i think you also know (laughs) a little bit
0: about
2: (laughs) you know but that's what's kind of fun because it is like choreography it's moving characters through space and seeing how moving them around can change can change the kind of tension and vibration and in the room yeah what about ballet
1: oh ballet (laughs) ballet i love ballet and in many ways, I started writing the the linked stories because I wanted to write about I really ballet. want to write about ballet. Katie, please. <laughs> the people are ready. <laughs> I am the people. <laughs> um, I think you would break the internet if you wrote about I'm going to write it for ballet. you. <laughs> please. I would love nothing more. But I love ballet. I love... Um, mm. But I never felt that I, I could write about it. I never mm. felt like I had... I was like, I don't know the words. Mm. I don't know the, t- the stuff. I don't know anything about it. But then... I was watching World Ballet Day, came across like a clip of it on YouTube.
2: What's World Ballet Day? So
1: World Ballet Day is this incredible international initiative where TV crews and film crews go into various ballet companies around the world and they film morning rehearsal, morning class, and they talk to choreographers and they have interviews with dancers and they they film rehearsals for like pieces that are going to be performed and you really get an inside look into the world of ballet and part of why that was so revolutionary for me was that i'd always thought of ballet as this like removed elite world that i had no access to but when i saw that clip of them practicing i was like oh I come from a family of football players. I know what yes. practice is, yeah. I know what yeah. rigor looks like. I know what that sort of dogged dedication to pursuit of your physical peak and how your body is your instrument. And I knew what that was like. And I was like, oh, I know how to write about practice. I know how to, I know how to think about practice. Mm-hmm. And seeing the behind the scenes, the practicing side of it, I was like, oh, I know who these people are. I know exactly the kind of person who does this and what goes through the mind of an athlete and an artist. And so then I felt like I didn't have access to write about specific choreographers, but I did have access to the language of practice and physical rigor and started writing about ballet from that end of it. And... I do think that had I not written those stories, I wouldn't have written the tennis section of real life because it was like, oh, I can write about these physical activities yeah. that I love so much. And so yeah. I love writing about ballet. I love writing about dance. And mm-hmm. I do feel that there's something very gestural in my work. And I feel that that's true of your mm-hmm. your work as well. There's something so pared down that it becomes every gesture mm-hmm. is so charged. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to our love of Ibsen, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Do you know this choreographer Jerome Bell?
0: No. I want
2: to send you this link because I think you would love this. He, he he's a, I guess kind of he does dance, I guess what would be called dance theater and he's a kind of conceptual artist of mm. dance, I would call it. And he did this piece that is so beautiful and it's I think it's called The Last Performance and it was a uh, commission I think for the Paris Opera Ballet and it's a corps de ballet dancer in her early 40s who's about to retire and she's never moved beyond the corps de ballet. So that, is, that has been her, you know, she's she strived, obviously, she's reached a very, very, very high level. She's dancing in the Paris Opera Ballet, but she was never a star. And it's just a piece, for example, so they'll, they'll do the second act of Swan Lake, and it's just her standing by the side, you know, in the rows at the Swan's form during the big pas de deux, and the stage is empty except for her occasionally changing position. And it's, it's completely captures all of the heartbreak, and the striving, and the kind of reaching, the kind of, which I feel is a big emotion in in your work, is this kind of sense of this reaching out for something that might elude you. And it's so moving. And then there's this really astonishing moment where she talks about her favorite dancers, and then she just sits down in the middle of the stage and they, they kind of project a screen of like a dancer who is everything that she never was. And it's completely heartbreaking. And it, it's that dancer's four
1: last performances as a professional dancer. Oh my God. Yeah,
2: it's really, really, really incredible. That is
1: incredible. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Talk about the the sort of heartbreak, the titanic heartbreak of a single life. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> wow. I, yeah. But I feel like that, the description of that has so many of the things that I love about your work which is the it sort of takes these seemingly mundane things and what you do so brilliantly is you illuminate the emotional charge and the significance of those mundane things within the context of life and I think about well, I think of you as like a great writer of objects, like you know objets d'art and little trinkets and little bits. Like I feel like you you write a great sort of small desk object. <laughs> um, and at first glance, like one might think, like oh, like why did Katie Kinnamore like write about this pen or like the feel of this paper under a person's hand? But it's really in the field of the novel, the sort of total context of a life that all those sensations. Take on such meaning because honestly, sometimes when a character leaves one of your scenes, I'm like, we might never see that character again. <laughs> like, you know, like, like a character might just disappear. <laughs> I feel
2: like my entire project as a writer, maybe as a person, I don't know has been to kind of become looser on the page. And, Mm. you know, I always have in the past written with a very firm outline and I've always known where the the car was heading, so to speak. And with this one, I thought, what will happen if I actually just know? I knew what would happen up to the mid, there's a middle section in, in an art museum, which is a kind of you know, when we were talking about oxygen circulating yes. through the book, I was hoping that would kind of bring in a bit of fresh air or something. So I knew up to that point when I started writing and then I kind of really didn't know what would happen in the second, I knew roughly, but not totally. I just liked the idea of being stuck in a haunted house, which mm. is what, what she's stuck in essentially. Yeah, with all his you know, like stuff. Rebecca, like Daphne du Maurier. Oh, yes. So it's, it's like that a little bit, you're just stuck in the house in this haunted space full of this stuff that is not yours. All of which signifies a life that you don't share, that is not part of your life. And you're wondering if you can have the audacity to imagine yourself in this life or not. It's kind of where the starting point was. I mean, I, I, you know, and obviously Rebecca is all all about Mandalay and Rebecca rather than Mrs. De Winter.
1: Sometimes in a haunted house, the haunting is of Course, like de- often derived from the psychology of the person who's being haunted, yes. and it's like this sort of exterior projection. But in intimacies, I feel that she knows that she is haunting herself, <laughs> like she, she's like deeply aware of it, and yet she's just like powerless to stop imagining not only, you know, like what is he doing over mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. but also, like, does he bring other women to this apartment? Mm-hmm. Am I the only one mm-hmm. he's brought to this? Ap- mm-hmm. Who am I? Mm-hmm. What are we? Mm-hmm. What's going mm-hmm. on, etc.? the obsession i mean it goes from this sort of like very carefully calibrated like oh we're intimate this is so nice to this the sort of darker side of obsession and it's the way in which like we haunt ourselves
2: well i mean because obsession is something you're doing to yourself Mm. right all all the time
1: wow that is very powerful (laughs) wow i wow you just totally saved me so many years of therapy (laughs)
2: I mean, I think what I, because I've so been there myself Mm. and I think I'm a relatively rational, no, I take that back. I'm really not. But I knew that everything that I wanted her to imagine should be something that's not really that terrible of a trespass. Mm -hmm. Like I think to me, if you are a person recently separated from your wife or partner, it's completely reasonable to have had some people passing through your bedroom. No, I mean, I think that's very normal. I think if you are married for a long time and you're going to separate from your partner and there are children involved, I think it's totally reasonable that you go offline for a couple of weeks and just figure out what is happening with your family mm-hmm. before you return to your yeah. new, very new girlfriend. But in the novel, because she is obsessed, it becomes something much, much more. And it's been interesting to hear people respond to it the character of the boyfriend because they really dislike him very much mm. and they find. In fact, Hari, my husband, when he read the first draft, he said he is so terrible and he does such really unforgivable things. And I, and I, I thought, are they? Are they that, <laughs> uh, that, that, oh, that unforgivable? I mean, are they that unforgivable? I mean, who among us has not done something a little mm. bit like that? And I think one. I mean, I kind of make a joke about it, but it is kind of like a middle-aged romance in so many ways. Like, they're not young people. They're people in the middle of their life. And I think I think at that point, people have histories. There are things about them that are unknowable. There will be large patches of their life that you will know nothing about. And they may have done things that you find difficult or or that cause problems, and yet you think, is this enough? Can it still allow whatever closeness I need to move into the future? And that was kind of where I wanted to drive the boat in the end. But actually, maybe that is still what a relationship can mm. can be. And that's not actually catastrophically bad.
1: Oh, my gosh, Katie. I will what? say that, like...
2: <gasps> Did you I, hate him?
1: No, I didn't hate him. I really liked him, but I was heated. I was like, he needs to stop playing with my girl like this. Like, he needs to, like, be... And part of it is because I was reading that book while I was going through something very similar in my own life. And I felt very... Pricked by, by the things that you describe, the sort of like, well, like he just went offline to be with his family. Like, why, like, why, why do you need this sort of constant affirmation? Like, isn't it enough to know that someone cares about you very yes. deeply? And it's like, yes, but also, what do you mean? We can't know everything about each <laughs> other. And it, you know, I, th- I think that like having recently molted into my thirties, I think it's like trying to let go of you know, not the passion of my twenties, but I think that when you're in your twenties, when you're, you know, a teenager, especially love and obsession are the same thing. And it, it doesn't feel real if it's literally not yes. consuming you.
2: Yes, <laughs> completely, <laughs> completely. I had, um, I was actually talking to somebody I'm teaching with here in Suwannee, but uh, I was describing, I went, I don't know if you've done this, have you done the Syracuse visiting writer Mm-mm. thing?
1: But I will be. You soon. will be, you're <laughs> doing it in the it's fall? A scoop.
2: Yeah. Okay. It's really wonderful. One of the things they do is, you know, they have an undergraduate class read your work. Mm-hmm. And and then I believe, at least the way it was structured when, when I did it, was that in order to get full credit, they need to ask three questions over the course of the semester. And they need to ask three visiting writers, stand up and ask a question. So what happens is you stand on the stage at a podium and then two lines form down the aisles and you spend about... 50 minutes answering rapid fire questions from the students and they're you know they're really smart of course and they ask these wonderful questions and I think I got one of the nicest (laughs) the nicest questions I had was this this woman stood up and she said you know I'm reading all these people uh saying that your narrators are so cold and they don't understand why they're so cold and 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 she was Asian and she said and I was like aren't they just Asian? (laughs) (laughs) which I love. But, but another another young woman stood up and she said, you know, I've been going through something very similar to what happened in the separation. So, of course, my heart is like, you know, with infidelity. And I was like, just, and she said, so my question is, do you have any love advice?
0: <sighs>
2: and I said, totally the wrong thing. I said, I will say that kindness is really Important And kindness is actually, I know it doesn't sound, there's not much drama in kindness, but kindness is one of the most important qualities that you can look for in a person. And it can be really sexy. And she literally just, her face was like, (laughs) I was speaking to her from a divide of so many years that she couldn't, but you know, she was really in the throes of it. And I think it's like, as you say, in your early life, it's very hard to divorce intensity of feeling from romance, from a love affair.
1: Yeah, I feel that I was groomed very early by this guy who who would say to me like you don't love me enough. You aren't you aren't driven mad by the thought of my absence. And so I my sort of early love life was trying to whip yourself into <laughs> Yeah, like Oh, I guess if we're not having a drag down fight about something that doesn't matter that makes us want to tear our clothes and scream at the moon then I guess it's not real love. And so to me, like love and ob- I spent a long time trying to like decouple I love and obsession, but yeah, I mean I do think that people sometimes say that about your work, but I don't find the work cold at all. I think that it's quite a lot
0: <laughs> <laughs> and
1: and so sensitive to the peculiar anxieties of our age.
2: I mean, I feel like for for me, I don't really mind being described as a kind of chilly writer because I I think f- for me what, w- everything you're reading is a character who's trying to maintain control of her feelings through mm. imposing a distance. Because I I mean, I think intimacy is probably a slightly less chilly of a book than than a separation, which is really chilly. <laughs> but you know, I mean, that kind of coldness is is characters who are dealing with trauma and who are dealing with mm. loss. Um, and and that is a, just a different expression of emotion. Yeah. Right. It's not. I mean, emotion isn't always heat. Emotion is a lot of different things. And loss isn't always heat. Loss. Loss and depth of emotion isn't always just expression. Sometimes, like the strongest revelation of emotion to me is when somebody is not able to express their emotion. I mean, this is probably from all my years reading. Freud and
1: Lacanian psychoanalysis. I was thinking thinking the same thing. I was like, Ah, yes, we are sisters in
0: Freud. Yeah, but but
2: you you know you know what I mean. That I think we can be conditioned. I mean, it is like we do. We are like in an age of confessional, of exposing everything, Mm. and to assume that that is you know like the TikTok crying thing, like that display of emotion is what is how we've conditioned to think we think of that as authentic feeling. And you know, in the separation, there's literally mourners. There are literally people who are weeping. And the novel's quite clear about how that is an expression of emotion that is is not necessarily authentic. And that so for me, it's like the, the clearest expression of the character's grief is actually her inability to cry, her inability to emote. But that's what I want to try to do in my books, I guess, is express emotion without doing mm-hmm. it or performing it, yeah. I guess.
1: Yeah, so. I feel I feel that you are your character's are on the long road back to the world yes mm.
2: and will they make it
1: and will they make it <laughs> maybe the road never ends but katie this has been an incredible conversation thank this you has
2: been so much fun brandon thank you
0: thank you for listening to the Suwani review podcast if you like what you heard the best way to support the Suwani review America's oldest, continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesewanireview.com. To discover what's happening at The Review, visit our website, or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages, at The Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is The Sewanee Review, new since 1892.